Welcome to True to the Bible Podcast with Hunter Davis. Thanks for joining us in our next lesson on the heart of Philippians. In today's study, Adam Barnes will be starting the book of Philippians after going over the context last week. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy this lesson. So what are some of the themes in Philippians that you guys saw and that we talked about last week? Humility. Humility is huge. That's a big one. Who just said participation? Participation is huge. Unity. Unity is huge. What? Yeah, there's a lot of encouragement, a lot of practical things that we can apply in our lives based on what we see in this book. Rejoicing. Rejoicing. This is the book. This is the, the epistle of joy. You don't find that word in any other book as is, is concentrated as you do in this book. We talked about last week that if you're struggling with depression or if there's anything in your life that's got you down, this is the prescription. It's joy in its perspective. Uh, was another one. What did we say that a bond servant was? Slave. Yeah, it's doing, a slave. Doing the will of the master. A bond servant is a person who does the will of their master. That's a perfect definition as it applies to who Paul was. Whose will was Paul's doing? The will of the Father. He was doing the will of the Father. He was doing Jesus' will. Timothy was doing their will, was doing it with Paul and with Jesus. The Philippians, we're going to see today, were faithful to participate in that same uh, ministry. And so guess what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to do the exact same thing. Okay, uh, where was Paul when he wrote to Philippi? He was in prison. Where at? Rome. In Rome. If you get both, I'll probably give you bonus on that. Where in Scripture can we read about Paul's first visit to Philippi? Acts 16. Acts 16. Anybody know a famous verse from Acts 16? They said, Believe 16, in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> so let's, let's put that in perspective, though, for real. So Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Is it any more clear than that? Is it any more simple than that? It's not. Where were they? In, in Philippi, uh, why were they in Philippi? Preaching. Why they come, or why were they? You there? tell me. I'm asking you, not you asking me. <laughs> God, God they came. directed them there. Yeah. God directed them there. Yeah. And what happened while they were there? They got tossed in jail. They got thrown in jail. And the Philippian jailer asks Paul, "What do I have to do to be saved?" And did Paul give a long? convoluted, confusing message about election, about works, about predestination, about walking down an aisle, about making a public profession. What did Paul tell this guy? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Why is it harder than that? I don't know either, but we're going to talk about it today. Um, Acts 16 specifically is what I'm looking for, but if you put Acts, I'll count it. When did Paul write the letter to the Philippians? Second mission. Perfect. That's it. 60 to 63, 60 to 62, somewhere in there. He wrote it. How long after that, what's the time difference between his visit and that? Anybody know? Yeah, it's about 10 years. About a decade later, he writes back to them. And if you'll notice, he's gonna, he, if you read, you notice that they were faithful to give, that they financially gave to him while he's on his ministry. They funded his ministry. Okay, let's get to the difficult part. What is the Greek word for saint? Sanctus. Nope. That's Latin. Hagios. That's what I was thinking. Hagios. 
And what does it mean? It's the root word for this big heavy word. We're going to talk about this today. Oh, I can't. Sanctification. Hagios. And that's the second answer. What's the big theological word that shares the same root word as saint? And it's this word, sanctification. I put that as your bonus because it's going to be a big part of what we're going to talk about today. I questioned whether or not to go through this because I know that you know it. It's a, it's a big distinction for Stillwater Bible and a lot of Bible churches in general to be able to draw a line and teach clearly the difference between this big word and this big word. Justification and sanctification. So you tell me. If you don't know, that's fine. But just think, let's think this through. Give me some things associated with justification. Eternal life. Eternal life. Why doesn't, well, that's exactly right. I was going to say, why doesn't that go under sanctification? But that's a bigger question. That correctly goes in this column. What else? Is faith too broad to put over there? Justification comes by faith. In what, Spencer? Christ. Faith in Christ. Just what kind of faith? That he was real? <laughs> that he was the Savior? That he was the Savior? Not just me, but your Savior. Yeah, yeah, so that's good. Holy, Page yeah. is saying death and resurrection is the two parts of the gospel message as Savior. A lot of people believe that Jesus was real or that he really existed. There's some people even believe that he died on the cross, but they haven't put their faith in him as Savior. The penalty of uh, sin is... So justification dealt with the penalty of sin. What was the penalty of sin? Death. Death. Okay. Not physical death. So this is step two. Death is really the uh, symptom. What's the sickness? Sin. 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 Sin brings about death. Somebody give me a verse. Somebody should give the me a wage, verse. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin... And so death is spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5.12. So that has to deal with justification. What, what, what else comes with justification? What does the word mean? We declared righteous. Declared righteous by who? God. God. By God. Declared righteous. Can you be justified before man? Yes. But not for so when you see James 2 and it says justification, is that talking about for eternal life? No. Can't be. Yeah, it's exactly right. So you're declared righteous. This is stamped approved by God. <laughs> when you put your faith in Christ as Savior, you get his what? Righteousness. You get his righteousness. Not only do you get it, you're declared righteous, and you get his righteousness. That's all justification. So let's switch gears. Because this is what we're focused on in Philippians, and specifically what we're going to focus on today. Give me some things to do with sanctification. Oh, I like that. Rewards. We don't get any rewards? 
for uh, justification? Uh, no. <laughs> That's not a reward. No. Why isn't somebody tell <coughs> me why eternal life isn't a reward? It's a gift. It can't be something that you earn. You can't do something to get it. So it can't be a reward because it's a gift. Give me a verse. Gift should go on that side. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Okay, yeah. What else? Is that the only verse that we know that it's a gift by us? That we don't have to do anything for it? Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God's eternal life. Galatians 2.16. Nevertheless, knowing that man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no man will be justified in his sight. Okay? What are some other things that go with... What do you mean rewards? Day events? Pretty... I don't understand that. Well, I mean, the works that you do are uh, result in rewards in heaven. Perfect. Just in heaven? Well, Eternal state, so definitely the kingdom, yeah. definitely the eternal state. Are there rewards for our obedience and faithfulness in this life? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. We're going to see it. God actually wanted to set apart Israel. He did all the work. He was the pillar of fire and the cloud of smoke. He's the one that took him through the wilderness. He set him apart and was about to give him into the land. And when he told him to go into the land, he said, I want you to be consecrated. I want to set you apart. And he was conditional. It's the same thing for us. The level, oh, here's something. When does justification happen? It's in a moment. The moment you what? You believe. What about your sanctification? So what are you saying? It's progressive? Mm -hmm. It is progressive. Yes, it's in your Christian life. The moment you believe, you are declared righteous. These all have implications, by the way. We're going to talk about these today. But it's important. What else? What else? Who's present your bodies, <coughs> present yourself as a living sacrifice. So you have, yeah, okay. So you have to work for it. You have to do something. Yeah, yeah. You have to work for it. Now we work in cooperation with God. He still has a part to play, but this is very much dependent on your desire and your will. Do all people get eternal life if they're justified? Uh-huh. Are all people sanctified? No. They're not. They don't get the same level of sanctification, if you will. They're not going to get the same rewards. When you stand before Jesus, he's going to reward you based on your... Yes, your faithfulness. Now, no, wait a minute. when we believe we're sanctified, right? Our, God begins the work in you, as we'll see today. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. Now, we're going to talk a lot about what that means. Positionally. Positionally, you are sanctified in your position. Okay, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think that's the only way. And that's why we talked about this being cooperation. If I spell something wrong, tell me. I went to Hennessy. I think that's how you spell cooperation. So, you get rewards, but not everybody gets the same rewards. 
We're supposed to strive for it. This is all dependent on God's work. This is dependent on our work with God. Yeah? Does everybody get this? That's dependent on the amount of work that we do with the gift that God gave us. Yes. Yes, it does depend partially on that. It also depends on your motives for doing it. We're not going to see it in this lesson, but I think in the next one, the one after that, we're going to talk about our motives for service. And so that's going to matter. If I go help a, you know, if 20-year-old Adam is wanting to look good in front of 18-year-old Brandy, and I see an old lady, I'm like, I'm not sure Brandy is a good guy. I'm going to go help this lady cross the street. I'm like looking at Brandy thinking, oh, she sees this. Is she seeing this? What do I have in full? I've got my reward in full. Brandy, sorry. Am I going to get rewarded for that good work? No. There's no reward in that. I wasn't doing it for the Lord. That's why he talks about when you give and you take your stuff and you don't clank it in the jar, you don't blow your trumpets when you give, because they, they just want to be seen by men. There's no reward in that. And I beg to differ. You'll be walking that old lady in the future. You're practicing. <laughs> <laughs> she already walks like she's old. All right. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, just thank you so much for this day that you've given us. I thank you for these group of believers who have come here today to faithfully participate in the gospel message. Lord, we thank you so much that you've given us a ministry. You've given us the ministry of reconciliation. We're supposed to take part in that, and we're supposed to faithfully put into action the gifts and the talents and the abilities that you've given to us. And Lord, as we look at these things today, I just pray that you would encourage us, that you would convict us, that you would motivate us on to love and good deeds, uh, not so that we can look good for other people, so that someday when we stand before you at the judgment seat of Christ, we'll hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, we know that when we're faithful to carry out what you've given to us, that the message persists. We have integrity in our message. People see us and want to be disciples. They see our love for one another. So I just pray that we would do this when it's hard, that we would do it when we're lazy, that we would do it when we don't want to, but that we would do it for your good and for your glory, knowing that you're good and we put our trust in you and the plans that you have for us are good. So just please give us the motivation that we need to carry this out amidst a crooked and perverse generation among whom we're supposed to appear as lights. We ask these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So today we're going to talk about participation in the gospel. I put the verse there. This isn't obviously the whole passage, but uh, verses 3 through 5. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. The point of this message, just straight up front, is that faithful participation in the gospel motivates, it encourages, and affects the lives of like-minded believers. This participation can come in many forms, and it's essential to the body. We talked about it a little bit already, but the level of your faithfulness to use the gifts, talents, and abilities that God gave you will culminate in the form of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, at which time the ripple effect of your deeds will be complete or perfected and evaluated. Growing in love through the knowledge, it's the second half of the passage we'll see, but growing in love through the knowledge of God's word and then applying it with discernment will lead you down a path of purity culminating in better rewards on that glorious day. So this is what we're going to talk about. This is the point of this passage in verses 3 through 11. Let's look at the outline. We're, obviously, we're going to the outline and goals right now. 
We're going to see some questions to consider. By the way, they were your frame of mind exercise, so you've already looked at them. We'll get a quick introduction, then we'll get into the meat of it, which is the participation in the gospel. We'll take a look at sanctification and the basis of Paul's confidence in these Philippians. We're going to look at a case study from the Old Testament and see how and why God wants us to be set apart to participate. In the last part, I, really it could have been a lesson in and of itself, but I don't have enough weeks to cover it, but it's a beautiful prayer that Paul gives at the end of this passage. And I called it Know It and Show It. It's a, and he gives us a decision-making progression. He actually shows us how to end up making the best decision, decisions in our lives that will culminate in rewards to judge us of Christ. Then we'll have a summary in the application. So let's look at the goals. Hopefully, after we look at this today, you'll understand what it means to participate or to have fellowship in the body. You'll know, know and understand why Paul was so confident in the Philippians' future. We'll see how God began a good work in the Philippians and in you. Did you know that God has begun a good work in you? Think about some benefits and consequences of our faithfulness when being set apart. Understand how to choose between better and best, not just good and bad. So we're going to look at these questions. You guys have already answered some of them in your frame of mind exercise. But what does it mean to participate in the body? Think about that in your mind as we look at this passage. Why was, so, why was Paul so confident in these Philippian people? Last week I gave you an appendix, I think, that showed all of the verses in this book that deal with his confidence in them. We're going to see a verse today in verse 6. It says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who begins a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What are the benefits and consequences of being set apart? I know that we talked about the benefits, but what does the Lord do with those who he loves? Say it. He can score you. He can discipline you. That's something to think about. Not everybody thinks about that. How do believers know how to choose between better and best, not just good and bad? How do you know? What would you guys think about that one, if you were just to answer it right now? Does it meet scripture? It does. That's it. It all comes back to biblical knowledge. In, in this verse, Paul is going to say that in this I pray that your love may abound more and more in real knowledge and discernment. Where do we get real knowledge from? Do we get it from the world? Where do we get it from then? The Word. Get it from the Word. You're going to hear me say a lot in this class. Everybody knows or hears quoted a lot of times the Hebrew passage that says the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. But the way that that verse ends to me is the most important part of that verse. It says that it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart. That's good that it's alive. It's good that it's active. It's relevant. It's now as it was when it was written. But what's it for? It says that we can filter our decisions through. It gives us the information that we need to be the most effective believer that we can. All right. So we've already talked that approximately 10 years had elapsed between the time that Paul established the church in Philippi and the time that he wrote back to them in prison. And if you read it, you've seen it. I put the verses here. But during that decade, the Philippian church faithfully supported Paul's ministry through financial provision. We think it's financial. It could have been food or clothing. But either way, it was provisional. The gifts that they gave him helped him throughout his ministry. 
But the, the other thing that they did is they also faithfully lived out the gospel message through their words and deeds. In chapter 2, he's going to say, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more while I'm absent, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says, just as you've always obeyed, they've always done it. They've been faithful to do what they were supposed to do. They were doing it right. And Paul, for his, in his, on his side of things, he was a faithful steward of the churches he planted, as evidenced by all these letters that he wrote back. He, you know, he writes back to the Galatians, kind of chiding them. He writes back to the Thessalonians. They weren't working because they were waiting for the rapture. Uh, he writes the Ephesians, lots of doctrinal truths, Philippians. All these places he set churches up in, and he cared about them. And so he was always checking in on them and getting letters back and forth and coaching them up along the way. However, the Philippians were exemplary, as we've already talked about. Their faithful participation brought so much joy that Paul constantly and consistently remembered them in prayer. And I told you last week that I had a little chart, which I kind of put in here for this week, but I went back and looked at every single one of Paul's introductions to the places that he wrote. And they all look pretty similar. But in none of the other ones he mentions joy. He loved these people with a special... They made him feel good when he thought about it because they were doing it right. We're going to study that today. But before we do that, this passage includes two of the major themes in Philippians. Let's list them first, and then we're going to see them in the passage. The first one is joy and rejoicing. Joy is a big deal. It's a big deal. If you can have the appropriate perspective... If you're looking through in your life, if you're looking through the appropriate lens, you can have joy in any 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 situation. And that's hard. That's a that's a next level and maybe a next level next level thing for Christians to do. But when you can have joy in whatever circumstances you're in in life, you're doing it right because you're looking at it through the right right lens. And the second thing is that participation in the gospel, and that's going to be the bulk of what we're going to talk about here. Participation in the gospel. You guys tell me, based on what you see in the world, based on what you see in Christianity in the United States, uh, what percentage of Christians would you say participate or effectively participate? Five. Five out of a hundred people? Anybody else think, think it's higher or lower? If I set the over under 5%, what would you say? 20 maybe. The 820 rule maybe applies. In this church, it's high. It's high because I think that we rightly divide the word of truth and it motivates us to do the things we're supposed to do. But yeah, I'd say definitely between 5 and 20. I think it's low. I think that, uh, especially over the last 50 years or so, it's gotten progressively lower. And we may have hit a, a turning point to where either we need revival, we need to do something. But I would say that there has been a a lack of participation as a whole in the body, which is why this lesson is so important. Not just for you to hear, but for you to take out to the world. How do you define that, though? How do you define participation in the gospel? You're jumping ahead of me, Barb. Okay, well, then I know. <laughs> <laughs> that's something I'll look smarter later. <laughs> that's a good teacher, right? Yeah. Well, All right, so let's read the passage. Who has it up? Somebody read me verses 3 through 11. 
thank my God in all my remembrance of you. We're talking about chapter 1, right? Always offering prayer with joy in my joy in my every prayer for you in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident, confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Thank you, buddy. That, that's 13. <coughs> oh, one more. Have, oh, yeah. Go one more. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Thank you. I'll catch you up. That's my bad. So the commentator that I most respect and that I rely on really a lot thinks that the thesis of this passage is verses 3 through 6. And he says that verses 3 through 6 summarize the entire epistle. They introduce the main theme, which is Philippians' partnership in the gospel. I really think it's 3 through 7 or 8, and I'm going to show you why later. But then in this box, I've got another writer said that all the rest of the letter is concerned primarily with their development as koinonia, or koinon, I don't know what the, how do you say that form of it, but so that they may be blessed with a temporally fruitful, but eternally rewardable partnership in the gospel. And I think he hits the nail on the head with that statement. So we're going to talk about that. Let's talk about participation in the gospel. He said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy and every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So, as I mentioned, Paul, in all of his letters, in his introductory letters, eight of his 13 to the early churches uh, all kind of sound the same. I, I, I put them there, but this is the only one, the first blank. Paul's introductory prayer for the Philippians is the only one that he offers with joy. It's the only one that he offers with joy. You guys are way ahead of me, right? No? No. Must be on the next page. Paul's introductory prayer for the Philippians is the only one that he offers with joy. He mentions joy rejoicing 14 times in this book, which if you consider that there's only 104 verses, that's a lot of joy and a lot of rejoicing. He says it twice in one verse. Rejoice in the Lord again, I say, rejoice. So you tell me, according to Philippians 1, 3 through 5, when did Paul pray for the Philippians? Every time he remembered them. Any time that he thought about them, he prayed for them. If you think about that, it makes sense. It's somewhat practical. If these people bring you joy, man, I'd think about them all the time. If I got happy about it, and there's people like that in my life that when I see, I'm happy to see. I'm happy that I get to be with them. They bring me joy. These type of people were them. And he always prayed intercessory, that's I-N-T-E-R, 
There's different types of prayer. You guys know this. Intercessory. Prayers for them. What is intercession? Yes, it's when you're praying on someone else's behalf or you're praying for them. That's a selfless act. To pray for somebody else. You're praying for their good and their benefit. I put in this box that Paul didn't see prayer for the Philippians as a burden or a requirement, but instead he prayed out of genuine delight for them. Who are those people in your life? That's something that I want you guys to think about, not just today, but as you go through the week. Who do you pray for? Who are the people that bring you joy in your life that when you think about it, you pray for them? Should be your kids, probably. Should be your spouse. Should be your spouse. <laughs> just joking, Brandy. I know that she's listening. Like, but seriously, when you think about that, prayer is a big deal in participation. If we're going to unite around the common goal of spreading the message of Jesus Christ, we have enemies that are working against us. I think that goes along with special relationships, too. Yeah, at least it's a, The people that you put, pray for, you have those special relationships with. So, not just joy, but, you know, all kinds of different attitudes and emotions go along with that. Yeah, I think you're right. Because you know them well enough to know what some of their needs are. Barb, that's next level. <laughs> that's true. Let me ask you this. How can you pray about their needs if you don't know them? You can't. Why do you think this world wants us to stop meeting in person? If you stop meeting in person, you don't know what's going on in people's lives. You don't see it. You don't feel it. Mm -hmm. That's why in Hebrews it says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another onto love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That is directly relevant to today's Christians. Mm -hmm. We have to meet with one another. If they ever stop us from meeting in this building, we got to be in one another's homes. Because how can you intercede for them? How can you pray for them if you don't know what's going on in their lives? I don't think we're accomplishing this if all we have among each other is just a mere acquaintance. Amen. Does God want us to be mere acquaintances? Does he just want me to know who Daniel and Kira are and to know who their kids are? Or should I be praying for them in the ministry that Brandy's overseeing so that they're going to grow up and perpetuate this message? Because when you serve in the nursery... When you teach a class, when you listen on Wednesday nights, when you come and learn stuff that you can take and pass on, you're participating effectively. Because their kids need it. I need to know them, and I need to know what's going on in their lives so that I can pray for them. We're going to see it here in just a second. We got enemies. Satan's world system is as strong as ever. It's our enemy. Satan's our enemy. Though he's not going to attack us directly, he does have resources that he can deploy. And he's not going to waste them on people who aren't doing anything. He's got them right where they want them. He's going to spend his resources on people who are participating. And they need prayer. Paul was always praying for them every time he thought about it. I also want to make this point. There's an emphasis in Philippians on the entire body of believers there in Philippi. He does mention people by name. But the word all is used here a ton. And at least ten times, it's directly dealing with inclusivity and unity in the body. Okay? 
just in the woods say, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation of the gospel. Later he's going to say, in this I pray that you love me and I still more and more real knowledge and all discernment so that you may prove what the will of God is. That's not talking about an individual. That's not talking just about so that Brent will know. It's not talking about just so Dave will know. We all have to know what the message is and know what our purpose is so that we can unite around it. We talked about it last week in the introduction, but it can't be a one-man show. It can't be a JB show. He can't do it all. He doesn't have the gifts to do it all. And that's why God gives us each individual gifts to serve with. We need empathy. We do need a pastor. We need someone to teach us. We need someone to shepherd us. But we need people to serve behind the scenes. We need people with the gift of helps. We need people with exhortation who can coach us up when we're wrong and encourage us when we're right. We need every single one of the gifts in order to be the most effective in the body. And when you participate, like you said, Ted, putting your gift in service, you're effectively participating. And when you do that, there's going to be rewards. We're going to see it. So who do you pray for and why? We've talked about it, but prayer is essential in participation. We're going to see actually reciprocal prayer in this book. Paul here says he prays for them, but later on, he says that, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul literally says, I know I'm going to get out of jail because you're praying for me. That's a big deal. It's reciprocal prayer. So prayer is important. So who do you pray for? I'd say pray for everyone. That's hard to do because it takes time. It takes You have to discipline yourself to do it. But I would say this, especially for those who are faithful in ministry because they're being attacked. Satan, like I said, he has limited resources, and he's not going to use them on people who don't matter. He's going to afflict JB. He's going to afflict Brian. He's going to afflict Brandy. He's going to afflict people who are faithful to put that stuff into action. Now, we have a comfort, because First John says that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We can win. Paul's actually going to touch on that when he talks about God began a good work in you. He's giving you the tools. He set the table for your success, but it's dependent upon you whether or not you're going to persevere, whether or not you're going to endure, not for eternal life, but for rewards, for your sanctification, in the ministry that he has set for you. So let's see it. So what is the reason Paul gives for his Thanksgiving prayer? What does Paul state as the reason for his Thanksgiving prayer? That's why he prays for him. It sounds kind of funny to think about it because it kind of sounds selfish for Paul to say, I, am, I love you because you give to me. And I love you because you're faithful. But that's what he says. He's not saying it out of selfish. He's saying we all have a common goal. That goal is the proclamation and the persistence of the message of Jesus Christ. And I thank God for you. It gives me joy because you're doing it right. Paul's Thanksgiving prayer was because of the church's participation in the gospel from the first day until now. How long had it been? Ten years. Ten years. What's that imply? Faithfulness and consistency. The Philippians were faithful 
and they were consistent over that 10 years they gave when they could we're going to see it we talked about it last week but we're going to see in chapter four he says I, yeah there was this time that you weren't giving but you lacked opportunity he said you couldn't do it then but at last i'm grateful that now you've revived your concern for me I don't know why that, that part was really funny. Yeah, it is kind of funny because <laughs> it sounds passive aggressive if you think about it that Just way. Saying thank you and slapping. Right. <laughs> but that's not how he meant it. So this is really cool, and I want to spend some time on this. But the word translated participation here is the same word for fellowship. Last week Heather said it makes me think about eating dinner with somebody. When I was growing up in the Southern Baptist Church in Enid, we had fellowship dinners. Fellowship Hall. Fellowship Hall on Wednesday nights. Come and get your $2 meal and then come to church. We're going to fellowship. In a sense, that's participation. That's not getting to the heart of it. That's not getting to the heart of what participation or fellowship is. So let's look at it and think about it. The biblical... Oh, yeah. It, it could be part of it. You know, the, the breaking of bread together and spending time with somebody across the table to get to know them a little bit better so that I agree a thousand percent. Kevin touched on something that is near and dear to my heart, which is getting together with people and eating with them. You know somebody so much better when you eat with them. My point, though, is that that's what most people box it in as. It's so much more than that. But I think there's something to that. When you're in somebody's home and you see how they deal with their spouse or you see how they deal with their kids or you see how they keep their home, it says a lot about them. And it might expose some needs or you might expose yourself to them about your needs. But let us consider how to stimulate one another on to love and good deeds and not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. That's not just this building. That's in our homes. That's getting together with people and sharing talking about it, knowing what their backstory is, what their struggles are, what they're going through. That types of stuff important so that you can intercede for them, so that you can encourage them, so that you can show them mercy, so that you can be there for them. So that you can identify their gifts. So that you can identify their gifts. That's important, isn't it? That's important for a shepherd, too, to know. If, if we're not willing to be transparent enough to share with somebody where we really are spiritually, as opposed to what I may appear to be. Yep. I don't think we're having fellowship at all, and I think this is probably the worst fault in churches today, is the fact that we don't, maybe it's because we've never experienced it. I think so. I agree with you 100%. And I know, because I've eaten meals with Buddy, and we've talked, Buddy's experienced this in bodies that he's been in. He's had places where they were transparent, open, and honest with one another to have good fellowship so when he says that listen because he's experienced we've got that going here we got it in bubbles it's still water bible but it needs to be a unified thing that we understand and know one another that we show grace to one another that we love one another that we bear one another's burdens that we forgive each other all of that stuff is so important because we have an enemy and the enemy's not each other we already have somebody who's accusing us constantly Let's leave the dirty work to him, as Ironside says. So, the biblical Greek word for participation is koinonia. And there it's transliterated. I have it right there. Koinonia. It carries the idea of partnership, 
joint participation, not just doing something, but doing something with others, in contribution, as we see with the Philippians, they're contributing financially or provisionally. And the Greek word in Philippians 1.5, oh, I did I put that twice, I'm sorry. Like I said, it is a bad editing week. In Scripture, it can mean or convey the idea of sharing of something, participation in something, fellowship or intimacy, just like you were just talking about, buddy, or contribution or help. That's participation with one another. It can refer to person-to-person -person fellowship, God and person fellowship. We talked about this, and it's a big deal. We teach this at Stillwater Bible. When we sin, are we in fellowship with God? No, you're not. If Brandy and I are in a fight over something that I did that was stupid, and she's mad at me, but I'm stubbornly digging my heels in, are we in fellowship? Is she still my wife? Our relationship doesn't change, or shouldn't change, but we're out of fellowship. And so what needs to happen in order to restore fellowship in our relationships? You need to give in. So there's a fine line between giving in and asking for forgiveness, which is what I was looking for. Is this a result of experience here? Definite result of experience. So how do we get back into fellowship with God? You confess. You tell on yourself. I'm in a constant state of this because of my fellowship. I'm serious. I will sin, and as I'm sinning, be asking for forgiveness. Because yeah. fellowship is important. It is. I need to know that I'm in fellowship with my Lord. It's me saying, I know that what I did is wrong. Your way is right. My way is wrong. You're God. I'm not. When I do stuff like what I just did, I'm denying you and promoting myself. Confess. Understand that. Stay in fellowship with God. And then, of course, the bottom line to this fellowship and participation is that believers should strive together in ministry. He's making his thesis. In verse 27 of chapter 1, he's going to say, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or whether I remain absent, I'll hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We're supposed to strive with others in ministry. We're supposed to be unified in our message. This is a theme he's going to peck at the entire four chapters. Participation is a big deal, but we don't talk a lot about it. It's part of this. So most of, It's part of your sanctification, so most of Christendom isn't going to talk about it because they're only focused on this. Most of the Bible isn't about how you have eternal life. Most of the Bible is what you do once you have it. There are books that deal with eternal life specifically, but most of that, especially Paul's epistles, most of them aren't dealing with justification. They're dealing with your Christian life. They're dealing with growing, with maturing, becoming more spiritually mature. And so this doesn't get talked about in our society, but we're talking about it now because the message is important. And really, our world needs it now more than ever. So the question is, who are you participating with? We all in this room are participating right now. It's dependent upon you, each one of you, to go into your sphere of influences and take this message and perpetuate it. A lot of this book is how you do that. 
You can't do it if you're not unified in purpose. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be rubs. Someone says, we should do this. And the other person says, no, we should do that. When Last week when I said that Stillwater Bible kills it, in terms of our purpose, plan, and process, we kill it. Because our purpose is to make disciples. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That involves evangelizing unbelievers, and then once they believe, training and equipping them to carry out the ministry, which is our process. That's how we do it. We equip the saints to do the ministry. So who are you participating with? All right, next section, 2.5, sanctification, the basis for Paul's confidence. He says, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who begin a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it's only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Every time I read that verse, I think about gone with the wind. For God is my witness. Paul emphasizes the Philippians' participation by expressing confidence in their future. So in verses 3 through 8, this is the little outline of this section, we see Paul's confidence in the Philippians' future. We're going to see that the next word, that this confidence in verse 6, is the emphasis of the passage. Think about that. People get caught up so much on verse 6 about what that means. It's in the middle of his thesis statement, and the main word in that statement is confidence. I'm going to show you why here in just a second. Number 2, the reason. We're going to see the reason for his confidence in the Philippians' future. You guys have already told me what it is. We're going to talk it out a little more. And then number three is Paul's love for the Philippians. We're going to see more of that here. He clearly loves them. He's going to say here at the very last verse of this part of the passage that he loves them with the innermost, with his guts. He says, I get that guttural love feeling. That's a big deal. With the innermost parts of his being. With the affection of Christ Jesus. Okay, so, like I mentioned, though I believe that that participation is the thesis for the book, the emphasis within the statement is Paul's confidence. So let me show you what I mean. Let's dissect this. Going back to 3 through 4, verses 3 and 4, he says, essentially, when I think of you, I joyfully thank God and pray for you. When I think of you, I joyfully thank God and pray for you. This is a statement of love. He loves him. Would you agree? Okay. And then in verse 5, why? Why does he love him? In view of what? Their participation. He's going in. He's making his argument. I'm just going to give you a spoiler alert. He's going to back out the same way he went in to emphasize what's next. So there, he was. He loved them because of their participation, which creates what? Fellowship. Confidence. He's confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. The four there 
is carrying on the argument. For I'm confident of this very thing. He says, I'm confident that God's going to use you in the work that you're doing until the day of Christ. We're going to pull verse 6 apart in a minute, but let's just focus on this part right now. He said that God's going to use you and your work until the day of Christ. Why? What does he say in verse 7? What are they? Partakers of grace. Say it again. Partakers of they grace. are partakers. They're participating. He's confident because of their participation on both ends of this. And then in verse 8, he completes it by saying what? I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's what the innermost parts of his being, he loves them. He ends it with a statement of love. Does anybody know what this rhetorical device is called? Oh, well, sorry, I didn't know. <laughs> I love you, buddy. <laughs> I'm so thankful for your participation. <laughs> so though I believe that participate, like I said, so this is a chiasmus. It creates a chiasm. And what it does is it uses a inverse or reverse relationship between the elements of corresponding ideas to highlight a point. And the point here is that he's his confidence. He is very confident in them. So think about this for a second. Why is Paul so confident? Because of, because of who the source is. Because God began a good work in them? Mm-hmm. Does God begin a good work in every believer? Mm-hmm. He does. Who is this dependent on? Who is our sanctification dependent on? Us. Okay, so their participation in yes. the work that's meant to be done. Because of their participation. He's confident because of their participation. They're fellow partakers of grace. Probably also because of the verse 4 in chapter 2 where it talks about do not merely look out for your own personal interest but also for the interest of others. But they must have anticipated his needs or thought about what his needs are and met them. And it's a great point. In the length of time, also for 10 years. 10 years! years. Like it did, yeah. From the first day until now. From the beginning, from the time that you got it, till now. That's a big deal. Because Paul did it the same way. The moment that the post-resurrected Jesus showed himself to Paul, two questions. Who are you? I'm going to make a decision about who you are and what you want me to do. I'm going to put it into action. From the day that Paul saw it to the day that Paul died, he faithfully participated in the task that was given to him. Okay, so God began a good work in the Philippians. And Paul was confident that God would complete that work. For their part, do the Philippians have a part to play in this? 100%. 
for their part, the Philippians bought into the plan. They were faithful to participate in the work and the ministry of Christ. So Paul's confident that Christ is going to perfect it. The word confident there has the idea to take a position on something based on reason. We know that the reason is what? His confidence is based on the reason of their participation. They're doing it. They're faithful to do it. If I see Gabe with his kids, and they're praying at the dinner table, and they're talking about things of the Lord, and he's raising them up in the way that they should go, there's a good chance that one of his 40 kids, (laughs) that's going to have a ripple effect. Because hopefully they'll take the message to their kids. I'm confident in this very thing, that he who began a good work in you is going to perfect it. He's going to bring it to completion at the day of Christ. The question then is, what's the good work? So let's discuss it, because this passage gets taken out of context. Back in the days when I was a Calvinist, this is something that I would use to show perseverance of the saints. You're going to persevere. The saints will persevere because he who began a good work and he's faithful to perfect it or to complete it. That's not true. That's bad doctrine. This makes this verse into something that it's not. So let's talk about this. We're going to talk about what it isn't right before we get into what it is. So how does a person gain eternal life? A person obtains eternal life, salvation, by faith in Jesus as Savior. Yes? For God so loved the world that gave his only begotten Son, that whoever we saw in Acts 31 believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of salvation to everyone who lives it out. Oh, no, yeah, it's beliefs. It's beliefs. So what role does works play in your eternal life salvation? What role does works play in your eternal life salvation? Zero. Nothing to do with it. Eternal life salvation, as we talked about earlier, is a gift. You can't work for it. It goes against the definition of the words. Eternal life salvation is a gift. It's not something earned by doing anything. We said these two verses, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Romans 6, 23, the one that changed my life was Romans 4, 5. Anybody know it? But Kevin said, but to the one who does not work, but believes his faith is credited as righteousness. So is believing a work? No. That verse says believing is not even a work. Even though it's a verb, it's something that we do, it's not considered a work. The one who puts their faith in Christ as Savior gets justified. You get God's righteousness. That's a big deal. That's a huge deal. You guys told me earlier that justification had to deal with eternal life and getting God's righteousness. But to the one who does not work but believes, his faith is credited as righteousness. It's a gift. It's not something you can do by earning it. So believers etern- or obtain eternal life the moment they believe in Jesus as Savior. This is a big deal. It's a big deal. Is eternal life a package that you get once you physically die? Oh, yeah, I remember back in that day you believed. So here you go. You have eternal life now. Is that how it works? No, we have it right now. 
you can enjoy the quality of your eternal life even now on earth. It's weird to think about, but you can. You have eternal life right now. The life that you're living right now is the same life you have in eternity. You have eternal life. That's cool to think about. 1 John 5.13, these things I've written to you who, present tense, believe, why? So that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants you to know. He wants you to know that right now, that based on your faith, you have eternal life. You've got it. John 5.24 is another great verse when you want to talk about tenses. Somebody tell it to me. Okay, Paige, great. So he says, have he who, church he who hears and believes what's the tense? Has. Present tense. Eternal life. And then does not come into judgment. What tense is that? It's future. <clears throat> but what? Has passed. I see that as present. What? You have passed. No, does not come into judgment. Yep. In the future. It's actually condemnation. That helps. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word has eternal life and does not come into judgment. But he has passed from what? Past tense. Present, future, and past, all in one verse. You're not going to come into judgment. Same idea that he gives in, Barb, same idea that he gives in John 3. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he hasn't believed in the name of the only God, Son of God. So you can take it to mean present if you want. Because you're judged already. But when are you going to be condemned? When are you going to stay? When is an unbeliever going to stand in for judgment? Yeah. It's in the future. You're going to stand and be judged in the future. But I think it's important to know that your past, your present, and your future are all wrapped up in Jesus. There's a verse in Romans 11, verse 29. It says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What was that? <coughs> uh, Romans 11, 29. I like that. Thank you, buddy. Okay, I've got about five minutes before I become a liar. Okay, has God begun a good work in every believer? Yes. Yes. He has. We can look at this two ways. We can look at it corporately, like he's talking about in the Philippians, because the, the you all there is plural. I'm confident in this very thing that he who began a good work in you, that's a plural you, that's y'all, is going to be faithful to perfect it but it also works for your individual lives. What good work has God created in you? He's made us to be, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, 
new creations or new creatures. You're born again. When you believe, did you realize you're not the same creature? You're not the same creation that you were before you believed? You're not. You were spiritually dead. Ephesians 2. But he made you spiritually alive. You used to not be able to understand the things of God. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians. A natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he literally can't understand them because they're spiritually appraised. If you're spiritually dead, you can't understand the things that are spiritually appraised. He made you a new creation. He gave you the Holy Spirit. That's the next blank. He gave you the Holy Spirit. Why is that important in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, who you have from God? You're not your own. For you've been bought with a price. Therefore, what? Glorify God in your what? What does that mean? What does it mean to glorify God in your body? With your actions. Same thing he's talking about in Romans 6 when he says, Don't present the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God and your members as instruments of righteousness to him. Your body that the Holy Spirit lives in is to use to glorify God. That's sanctification. He gave you the Holy Spirit. You're a new creature. You couldn't do that before. But along with the Holy Spirit, you get spiritual gifts. That's the next blade. He gives you spiritual gifts. You have something. God began a good work in you by setting the table for you. He gave you the ability to serve. If you've put your faith in Christ, you have at least one spiritual gift. Some people have many. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11 says, As each one has received a, as each one has received a special gift, employ it as a good steward of the manifold grace of God. Don't sit on it. Don't sit on the gift he gave you. He didn't give it to you so that you could never use it. He gave it to you so that you could put your members or your body into service to glorify him. Next, he made us spiritually alive. We've already talked about that. You used to be spiritually dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience? But not anymore. He made you spiritually alive. And then my favorite one is that he's broken the bonds of the flesh. On campus, I have the opportunity to speak to a lot of college students about spiritual things. And every single one of them is addicted to porn. And they say, they can't beat it. I can't do it. I can't stop it. No matter how much I want to try, I go back to it. And I take him here and I say, you can. You can beat it. You don't have to do it. You are no longer a slave to sin. I get that your flesh pulls you that way, but the bonds of the flesh have been broken. You don't have to succumb to that anymore. You don't have to. You can present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. That's the whole point of Romans 6. Stop sinning. Stop doing it. But people think that it's impossible. And it's not. It's not impossible. You can do it because God has broken the chains of the flesh. You no longer have to be a slave to sin. Two, God will specifically use the collective work, this is the corporate sense, of the body of believers in Philippi until the day of Christ at which will be made complete. 
the easier is plural. Paul's pointing out that the collective work of God, specifically through the Philippians, will perpetuate. Did you say that the word you is plural? Mm -hmm. Okay. What did they do? The Philippians provided for Paul. The Philippians provided for Paul. The book of Philippians includes practical truths that help Christians even to today. If they wouldn't have sent that gift, would Paul have written the letter? This is a thank you letter, right? And because that letter was written, do you think that that book's had an impact on people's lives? Yeah, it has. It's having an effect on your life right now, on my life right now, because we're studying it. And the word of God, which goes forth from his mouth, always accomplishes his purpose. It never returns void. So where the point is that whether individual or corporately, the truth is that when believers buy in and cooperate or participate with God's plan by living out their faith, the result is their sanctification. If you want to uh, bring up, this is actually taken from Romans 6. He actually makes this exact point. Oh, I don't have time. Forgive me, I'm going to look it up anyway. Brandy's not here anyway tonight. <laughs> Look at verse 19. He's already he's talking about break. You don't have to be slaves to sin, he said, but I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members to slaves as impurity to, and to unlawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things that you are now ashamed? Because the outcome of those things is death. But now you've been freed from sin, enslaved to God. You derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. It's pretty cool. All right. We're going to skip the case study. So I'm going to make it part of your work next week to read this part. We talked about it earlier, but God <coughs> uses the Israelites as an example of how he wants to set us apart. He wanted to consecrate them. Before he sends them into the land, he gives them a conditional covenant. He says, if you obey me, there's going to be what? There's going to be blessing. If you go into this land and obey me, I'm going to set you apart. But if you disobey me, there's going to be what? Cursing. Discipline. Cursing. What do you think they did? Same as us. Yep. <laughs> So we're going to look at that. All right, verses 9 through 11. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus. This is such a cool thing. Look at this. We're going to just look at the decision-making progression. What is their love supposed to, or what is their knowledge and growth going to do? Their love is going to abound. Through their knowledge, growth, and understanding of the Word. That's the first thing that you have to do. If you have a biblical understanding of what the perspective is we're supposed to look at life through, you're going to get this. What is it? If you look at Scripture, what's the greatest emphasis? It's love. The Pharisee says to him, what's the greatest commandment in the law? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. 
The second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are two loves. First Peter 4, 8, above all, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Colossians 3, 4, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. First Corinthians 13, of all these that remain, faith, hope, and love, love is the greatest. The greatest of these is love. When you understand that, and really when you start to understand what love is, if you could describe, if you could say love, if you could give the definition for love in one word, what would it be? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. In Ephesians 5.1, he says, Be imitators of God and beloved children, just as Christ also loved you and what? Gave himself up. Paul's going to come back to this theme in chapter 2 when he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard yourselves, or regard others as more important than yourselves. That's the lens that we are supposed to look at life through. That we don't just take care of our own needs, our own selfish interests, but we take care of the needs of others. In John 15, 13, he says, Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his brother. That's the appropriate perspective that we as Christians, sanctification in our Christian lives are supposed to look through. When you do that, when you skip the appropriate perspective, you can identify and then evaluate the choices before you. When you're looking at things through the lens of love, you can look at your options and make the best decision. He says to walk worthy of your calling in Ephesians 4.1. In Hebrews 5.12, he kind of chews them out. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. We're supposed to grow so that we can make the right decisions. We're supposed to know what the will of God is, which is to love. And when we see and do those things, we can make the best possible choices. And he, uh, he says that, and then once you can do that, once you're able to, you have the ability to identify and evaluate the choices, you can advance the best ideas and leave the rest. Take the stuff that matters, leave the stuff that doesn't. Or maybe take the best route and leave the maybe next best route. That's what he's talking about in Hebrews 12 when he says, Therefore, since you're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, lay aside the sin and the encumbrances. Encumbrances are different than sin. Are there good things that can trip you up? Yeah. Is it a sin to work hard? No. Is it a sin to work hard for the wrong reasons? Is it a sin for your kids to play video games? Is it a sin for them to play too much video games? But even while they're deciding to play video games, and I'm speaking to myself because I like the video game, I have to make a decision. I can do that. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's an encumbrance in my life. It's something that's weighing me down from doing what I'm supposed to do. It's not that that decision's bad, that there's better decisions that I can make. We have the freedom to make wise choices. Galatians 5.13 says that you're called to freedom. Just don't let your freedom turn into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. When you do that, you become pure. That's what he says here. So that you may be sincere and blameless. Blameless is there is the idea of stumbling. You don't want to stumble. There's things, encumbrances, there's stuff that causes you to stumble. I put the exact same references there because it goes hand in hand with the ones above it. 
And in this way, when you don't stumble, when you make the good decisions that you're supposed to, what's going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ? You're going to be rewarded. This is a progression for how to get rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what the will of God is. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. That's the judgment seat of Christ. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Summary. Paul loved the Philippians and people with a special joy. They were faithful to participate and their biblical participation and fellowship meant cooperating towards a common goal, which is the gospel message. Same thing for us. The Philippians' participation created a confidence for their future and for their work. God wants us to be set apart. If you read that case study, you're going to see this. God wants us to be set apart. There are benefits and or consequences based on our faithfulness. We didn't have time to cover it tonight, but we will cover this again. We're going to talk about rewards in this study. We're going to get specific about what those rewards are. We're going to go specifically at the end of this class when somebody asks you, where do you get this doctrine of rewards from? You're going to be able to take them to all the places in Scripture that show them where they can get their rewards and what it means to get rewards the judgment seat of Christ. We're to grow in real knowledge and discernment so that we will see from the perspective of love and therefore have the ability to make wise choices which will culminate at the judgment seat of Christ and manifest as rewards for us. Here's the application. Faithfully participate in the ministry of Jesus. Did I read the teacher, my teacher notes on that one? Yeah, I did. You can read it. Be spiritually mature enough not only to discern between good and bad, but also to choose between better and best. All right, test for next week. Memorize Philippians 4, 6. That's easy. Right? For I'm confident in this very thing, that he who began a good work in you... Oh, 1, 6. I'm not asking you guys to jump in. 1, 6. 4, 6 is good, too. But we're going to get to that one at the end. Okay, 1, 6. Yeah, 1, 6. Sorry about that. Everybody at home, that's memorized Philippians 1 6. Yes, right. All right, I want you guys to be able to answer how Paul, Timothy, and the Philippians participated in the gospel message bar. We have to talk about participation. Be able to list three things that God did to begin a good work in you. What did He set the table for your success with? And with the Philippian people, by the way, I'll take either answer. Be able to discuss the benefits and consequences of faithfulness and obedience in our Christian life. I'll give some grace on that since we didn't cover it. But still be ready. Know the decision-making progression that Paul gives in verses 9 through 11. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us for True to the Bible podcast with Hunter Davis. If you enjoyed this lesson, make sure you subscribe so you can hear the rest of the lessons on True to the Bible podcast. And if you have any questions... Regarding this lesson or any of the other lessons, make sure you contact us at hunter.davis at stillwaterbible.org. Thanks again for joining us.